My name is Phil Haas. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications at Classic Stage Company, and you're listening to the first episode of the new CSC podcast. You just heard Tony Yazbek performing the title song in the CSC production of The Cradle Will Rock, a play in music by Mark Blitzstein, and directed by our guest today on the first ever CSC podcast, CSC Artistic Director John Doyle. Thank you for joining us, John. My pleasure. Um, our hope is that this podcast can provide a behind-the-scenes look at our programming with various artist interviews in the coming seasons, and we're so glad to be kicking things off with a look at this fascinating piece. So before we get into The Cradle Will Rock, can we talk a little bit about the season as a whole and how this show particularly joins the other works, because there are quite a few parallels, actually, right? Yes, there are. I mean, we started the season with Bertolt Brecht's play, uh, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, which, uh, you know, is a very political play dealing with the rise of fascism in the 1930s. Um, so it, it's parallel in terms of its time period of nothing else. Um, and this musical is, I suppose, looking at, ironically, at the, at the rise of socialism, potentially. Uh, now, Blitzstein, Mark Blitzstein, who wrote the piece, actually uh, honored uh, Bertolt Brecht, you know, um, by uh, naming the play for him, um, right. dedicating the, the, the musical to him. Um, uh, and on the front page, it says to Bert Brecht, which I think is rather sweet, really. Um, and so they were both people who were interested in the notion of theatre as a political tool, um, which was a, a very much a thing of the 1930s, the agit-prop, you know, ag agitation and propaganda movement uh -huh. in the arts. Um, and that's, that has reared its head at different times. It did the same thing again in the 60s. And I think, you know, in the world that we live in right now, where there's so much political debate, uh, I think it's happening again in the theatre. So I think those, th this piece, this musical and, and that first piece are the sort of two bookends uh -huh. of the season, if you like. And then in the middle, we did a, a repertoire of two Strindberg plays. Um, one, both written by a European, of course, but but one uh, a much more modern take uh, of one of his plays right. than the other. Uh, and they were done in, in repertoire, that is, you could see both of them in the same week, um, very much almost on the same set. Uh, and the whole notion of that block of work, which is something that we will be repeating, uh, I hope, for a long time at CSC, was to give opportunities to emerging artists. So the two directors uh, of those two plays were um, both emerging directors in the city, uh -huh. both women, which I'm very pleased about. One of them was an African-American woman. And, you know, opportunities for female directors are still sadly limited. Uh, not as bad as it used to be, but it's it's still a little bit the same. So um, those, these are all movements toward how I'm hoping our programming can grow in the future. Great. That's, that's wonderful. So The Cradle Will Rock 
some people might be familiar with the play. Some people might not be. But the the history of the play is, is quite interesting. Mm. And um, a lot of people might know the history from the 1999 film mm-hmm. that Tim Robbins uh, directed. And mm-hmm. uh, would you be able to speak a little bit about the history of that and how the, the play evolved with the Federal Theater Project and all of that? Yes. I mean... The Federal Theatre Project came out of the WPA, which was the big movement in the in all of the arts. Uh, and it, the, it, the WPA is the Works Progress Administration that's that correct. Roosevelt created in '35. That's correct. And it really was a huge project throughout the United States of America. Um, at one point, there were, I believe, 40,000 artists working for the WPA, through wow. the WPA. And, you know, it was a marvelous vision of having, for example, let's say you could take a, a, a play or a musical... Um, for example, there was a, a play of the time called Waiting for Lefty, which uh-huh. kind of tells you yeah. everything you need to know, really. <laughs> and it, it, these plays were done in up to like 20 theatres across the country, all at the same time. Mm. Um, so it was a movement toward using theatre almost as a form of education in different communities. And many communities that now have existing not-for-profit regional theatres Those companies started out of the WPA, out of the Federal Theatre Project, um, because uh, there had been no other opportunity to see any theatre in any of these communities. But it wasn't only in theatre. It was in in all arts forms. Um, The Cradle Will Rock, unfortunately, was the piece that closed the whole thing down. Because uh, the government felt, or certain agitators in the government Mm -hmm. felt that uh, it was too left-wing. And so they banned it, closed it down whilst still in rehearsal. It was directed by a very young Orson Welles. The the project was was all um, run by a a woman, Uh the whole whole theatre project, uh, uh, Miss Flanagan. Uh, and uh, another rather, f- who went on to become a very famous director, John Houseman, who started the, um, who started the acting division at, at Juilliard. Uh-huh. He was also a young uh, artist on the, on the project. Um, but they, they closed it. They put armed guards outside the theater. They didn't allow it to continue. Um, so Houseman had the idea that they could try and find another theater in the city. This was down in the th- in 33. 34th, 35th Street somewhere. Uh-huh. And uh, so they found a disused theatre up on 59th Street, I believe, and uh, walked the company up Broadway <laughs> to get to that theatre. Some night night porter let them in. Uh-huh. And uh, a whole audience followed them. It was a most marvellous image. <laughs> and that audience grew as it went up Broadway. <laughs> and uh, so they, they went in there and, and Blitzstein went to the piano on stage and the... Uh, the, the, the uh, Government had said, you can do the piece, but you can't put actors on stage. Right. Well, in most people's minds, therefore, you couldn't do the piece, that would mean. Right, right. right? Um, but but the, So they put the actors into the auditorium, and uh, Blitzstein sat on stage and was going to sing the whole score himself. And as he started to sing it, he heard a voice coming from the auditorium, which was a young actress called Olive Stanton, who played the character of Moll. And uh, she started Maul's aria at the beginning, Maul's song at the beginning. As, as he was playing it and he started to sing it, she, her voice joined in. And then gradually all the other actors mm. played their roles, but in the auditorium. 
and he was left on stage by himself playing the piano. And so it, it became a tradition, in fact, that the musical was done with, with uh -huh. one piano player. It was later uh, done with orchestras because it had been orchestrated, because right. it was going to be done with an orchestra um, until it was banned. Um, uh, but it was much, much later before it was done with any orchestra. That production played for a little while mm -hmm. up there, and then a version of it went to Broadway for a relatively limited period of time. But it really, it, its notoriety grows out of the fact that that was the end of the WPA. Yeah. That was the end of what we could almost look upon as subsidized theater in the United States of America. And of course, it's never recovered, as we know, in a, working in a not-for-profit organization. <laughs> uh, it has never recovered from that. It, it never, it, America never took on the European uh, notion, uh -huh. the European uh, model of subsidized theater. Sure. Um, and since that original production, there there have been other productions that have kind of influenced the appeal mm -hmm. of the show over time. Yes. Uh, you know, there's the Acting Company production from 1983 yes. that Patti Lapone was in. Yes, I mean, you know, the, the version that Patti Lapone did, that, that John Hausman directed, who mm. was the involved in it originally, you see uh -huh. the Acting Company, when that original class, first class of Juilliard, Paddy, uh, Kevin, um, Kevin Klein, Kevin Klein, thank you, uh, <laughs> David Ogden stars. I mean, many uh -huh. extraordinary actors. They, when they all left Juilliard, when Mr. Houseman started the the, the class, uh -huh. and they were the first group out, he said to them all, "I'd like to make you all into a company." And we'll call it the acting company, and it will go. It will go to cities all over America. So he was kind of trying mm. to recreate the WPA, right? He was trying to recreate that notion of taking theatre to people who would never have otherwise seen theatre. And that group of actors, many of whom have gone on to be famous, yeah. um, stayed together for three or four years during that. And of course, the acting company still exists, uh, and Margot Harley, who went on to who who was John Hausman's assistant uh, and then ran the company in the end um, she was she was the artistic director for about 40 years so it's still going but the and then in that was in the 70s and then uh, sorry and this was one of the pieces that they did uh -huh. but then in the 1980s they by the, they got all the alumni together mm -hmm. and redid it uh, in New York City and then at the old Vic theater in London. London. Uh, in the same season that Lapone did uh, Les Miserables. Uh -huh. So she won the Olivier Award yes. for that role, for both those roles together. Uh -huh. uh, so the, the best actress in a musical was for it, both. For both parts. That's very interesting. Um, and here we are this season. She's just won it again all these 30, <laughs> 40 something years later. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, that was a pretty influential production. And since then, it's been done in opera companies quite a bit. Yeah. But this is the first kind of major revival in the well, city and the for a long city time. centers did it in, in the city part of their center encore did series. in their in their summer encore yep, series whatever that series is called yeah, yeah. which uh, Raul Esparza yeah. did who played Arturo Ui and uh, Anika Noni Rose who played Carmen Jones yeah. for us last season she she played Ma. yeah yeah um, so a lot of people say the music in the show is very distinct yet it's extremely kind of varied in its form uh, and you can hear the influence this music clearly had on composers like Leonard Bernstein, who then went on to influence people like Stephen Sondheim, and so on and so on. 
What do you think makes this music so unique? Well, you know, if you take it, when it was done in 1937, uh, it was, you know, this was the same time as Babes in Arms or I Married an Angel or any of those yeah. rather lovely, delightful, fey, uh, <laughs> twinkle-in-the-eye type musicals, right? right, right. You know, music people weren't writing serious musicals. I mean, there had been Showboat in 1928 or 29, which was the probably, you know, you could argue, I think rightly so, that Showboat was the first great American musical. Mm. Um, but it was before the, the wonderful um, pieces of, of uh, Hammerstein and, and uh, Rogers, um, like Oklahoma and Carousel, which were dealing with big stories and stories that at their core had a kind of darkness at their core. There were shows, uh, The Lady in the Dark. There were some things that were a little more off the wall, uh-huh. a little stranger. But there were very, very few pieces that were dealing with this level of political mm. um, agitation. Um, there had been things like um, uh, the Three Penny Opera, of course. It's, right. it's about the same time-ish. He did, uh, Blitzstein did a ver- his own version of the Three Penny Opera, and he also did his own version of a piece uh, called um, uh, The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagoni, which is by by Kurt Weill and, uh-huh. uh, and Brecht, which is a very complicated, very political piece, which I did a production of over at Los Angeles Opera with Paddy Lapone, oh. funnily enough, and Audra McDonald. Um, and that's they, they were all pieces that, that were you know nobody in the it, when they were writing these guys they weren't writing for a commercial audience I right. mean they weren't thinking how, how can we write something that's going to be, be like Wicked and run yeah. for 12 years and nothing ran like that mm-hmm. a, a year was the most you ever heard anything running um, so they they were young Blitzstein was a young man with a you know really a sort of Marxist really who had a big political vision and wanted to put it into his work. He wrote the piece very quickly. Some, some people say in about three or four weeks. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Um, and it's very, the way it's written, you know, it's not, it doesn't have a big story. It doesn't no. have a plot. Right, it's right. a series of ideas. Uh, it's, it's looking at a series of ideas throughout the evening that do lead to a kind of emotional conclusion. But it, it's, you know, there was never an intermission. It's not a well-made musical. There aren't, right. in that way, there aren't, you know, uh, encores and song and dance numbers mm-hmm. like you might expect. It's it's putting across a political idea. I, and musically, the, the pieces of music, some of which are truly wonderful, but they don't necessarily link together. It's, it's It comes out of the kind of, uh, vaudevillian yeah, very nature much so, of where music. everything sounds a little bit different. Everything like is a bit different. A different kind of number for That's each right. part of the show. But you can certainly hear in some of the jazzier moments of the score, particularly early on, you can really hear Bernstein. You can actually mm-hmm. hear On the Town and you can almost hear <laughs> West Side Story. And uh, and yes, they are influenced. And funny enough, I was talking to, on the opening night, talking to the great uh, John Kander, who's a, a friend of mine, and he was saying how influenced he'd been by Blitzstein as well. Mm. So although Blitzstein didn't write all that many music, he wrote a piece called Juno and a piece called Regina, which is based on the little foxes. Mm. Um, but they're not done all that much. Yeah. But he definitely had an influence on, on his generation. That's great. So why don't I play a short clip? Uh, so 
Let's listen to, this is Laura Pulver, who plays Maul, among with other characters in our production. And she's singing what is perhaps maybe the most well-known of all the pieces in the show, um, Nickel Under the Foot. Maybe you wonder what it is Makes people good or bad Why some guy an ace without a doubt Turns out to be a bastard And the other way about I'll tell you what I feel It's just the Laura Pulver from the CSC production of Mark Blitzstein's The Cradle Will Rock. I'm here with the director of the show, who is also our artistic director at CSC, John Doyle. So that song is actually, it's, it's beautiful, but it's also really interesting, not just in its musical style, but if you think about those lyrics being mm-hmm. sung to a New York audience mm-hmm. in the late 1930s, still in the midst of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was that like to really find a nickel or a penny or whatever that might be there? And it it must have been so relatable. And it's still it's still so relatable today with everything that's going on, too. It absolutely is. I mean, there is a series of songs. That is one. The title song is another. And um, there's the song that uh, Rima Webb sings later in the piece, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Joe Joe Worker. And those really are the great kind of they're the great Brechtian songs of the show. They're the kind of arias of the show. Really. Uh-huh. They're the message of the show. And and Nickel Under, Under Your Foot is... Um, you're right. You know, at the time when this was written, there were, the, the, the union riots were huge. I mean, yeah. you know, the police shot down union protesters in Chicago. Uh, there were there was public carnage, really, uh-huh. over... Uh, the beginning of the trades union movements. Um, it's it's ironic, isn't it, that that all of that pain and agony went towards the creation of something really remarkable, which in itself has sort of fallen apart in mm-hmm. many senses. Yeah. You know, I can only I can say that as a British person because Mrs. Thatcher disenfranchised the unions in Great Britain. Mm. Um, but as somebody who was raised a socialist, uh, I fully believe in the, in that notion. And of, of the trade union. And, you know, we have to think of this girl who say, sings at the beginning of the show that she only has two days work a week. And that's right. why she has to earn her money in through prostitution. Right. So the leading lady is a prostitute. But not in a funny way, you know, not, right. oh, this is cute. Not at all. No. Um, and she what? doesn't want to be doing it. 
No. And what the story is telling us is that actually all of the people, all the rich people in the play, in the, in the musical, um, the doctor and the head of the university and uh, Mrs. Mister, yeah. they're the prostitutes. They're mm -hmm. the real prostitutes yeah. of the piece. So that's what the, her arc is. But, uh, you know, it, the, the notion of somebody who, who wants to find a nickel, right? Uh, it, it, and who has nothing. Yeah. There was no form of so social security. <laughs> she wouldn't have had medical cover. This, this, does this sound familiar to you in any sense? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, she, she would have had nothing. Yeah. Uh, less than nothing. And so a nickel, she says, you know, maybe it could have bought her coffee and. Yeah. She could have had something more than coffee. But actually she can only have coffee uh -huh. so she can't even get food um and you know i i i get saddened by um we we've talked about yeah, paddy yeah. lapone earlier on but i used to when i was working with paddy i would we would laugh because i would always pick up if i see a scent on the <laughs> on the sidewalk I always pick it up you know and she'll say to me oh you're a New Yorker you know because New Yorker uh, uh, tourists look up and New Yorkers look down That's to see right. if there's any money on the sidewalk <laughs> but but the, the, you know I've also seen I saw it actually the other day on 13th Street I saw people drop some cash look uh -huh. at it and not bother picking it up wow and I think wow what have we come to mm -hmm. because Equally, just around the corner in Fourth Avenue, there was a guy asleep on the sidewalk. Yeah. Right, that's New York, um, and so, so the story so hasn't changed. Not changed yeah. one iota. Uh, Eighty years on, it hasn't changed, and I think that's deeply sad. That that uh, we haven't, we're not moving forward, right. and we are still taking advantage of those who have nothing. Um, and, and we are still abusing our workforce mm -hmm. and the income, the money is still going to those who already have. Um, and that's really what's at the, the kernel of the cradle of Rome. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Mrs. Mister and Mr. Mister who are uh, kind of like seen as the villains in some yeah. way of the piece, yeah. But, yeah. but also more complicated than that. You yeah, can't just are. write them off as just that. No. Um, you know they drive a bit of the plot because a lot of the a lot of the pieces are about their influence on various people in the town, whether it's the editor of the newspaper yep. or yep. artists or you know whoever else That's might right. be around. Um, you know how how is that a part of the show? How do they play the, this role? Well, what happens really at the beginning of the story is that that uh, the the Liberty Committee, as they're called, mm. who are the kind of you know it's slightly. Um, it's a pastiche in a way. I mean, the the the, uh, the allegorical nature of the right. fact that they they are a committee responsible for liberty. You know, it's <laughs> ridiculous, really. But they're kind of very right wing, is what they all very are. Very much so, yeah. And um, you know, like the Freedom Caucus kind of quality to it all, I suppose you could say. <laughs> um, but you know, they they have gone to watch uh, a trade union rally. And by mistake, they got uh, uh, they, they, they made too much noise, and they yeah. got picked up by the cops and thrown into jail. I, I love the fact that uh, um, there we are making the piece on Thirteenth Street, and Tammany Hall was right there on Fourteenth right Street there. on the next yeah. block, you know. And the, the notion of all the riots and all the things that happened in Union Square—it's just there, right on the corner. Mm. And and uh, so the Liberty Committee, who are thrown into jail, 
uh, with Mall, who's also thrown into jail for uh, soliciting. Right. And she's soliciting with a man who actually, in, in our telling yes. of the story, is also Mr. Mister. Who's David Garrison. Yes, plays, that's yes. right. Um, you know, who's whilst pretending to be out as the sort of head honcho of the town, actually uh, is also out there on the streets, you mm-hmm. know. Um but he he uh, uses his family, his wife, to distribute That's Mrs. Mister, Mrs. Mister. Sally and Shiplet mm-hmm. plays. And so you know you can tell that that it's, again it's allegorical, Mister Mister and Mrs. Mister. Mm. Yeah, it's, they don't even give them. He doesn't even give them real right. names. And their kids too, Junior Mister, Junior Mister, and Sister Mister. Yeah. And they, for example, Mrs. Mister takes money to the church to basically bribe the church. Uh-huh to preach the kind of propaganda that her husband wants to be heard right. in order that they, the Mr. family, can earn more money. Yeah, so, they're u- mm-hmm. so they're using an, an, their political position to become wealthier and to have power. And uh, they then end up kind of running the town. Um, and uh, that's its own allegory, mm-hmm. of course, right? It's, it's not too big a leap. No. To, to see <laughs> where, where we are now, yeah? <laughs> What's interesting, though, is that, you know, I, I'm i kind of well-known, perhaps not for the best reasons, but in terms of everybody thinks I change scripts, you know, like, oh, he made it, he, cha- he cut it and changed it to make it uh, his own version. Sure. Well, <laughs> with something like the, with going back to Arturo Ui at the beginning of the season, mm-hmm. where everybody thought I'd rewritten it to make it topical, I didn't touch it at all. I cut it a bit. It's Brecht. You would kill yourself if you sat through the whole thing. But but I, but I didn't change the language. Right. And um, with this, I've hardly changed anything. I mean, I've trimmed a few lines here and there that don't make any sense anymore. Uh-huh. But I've hardly touched it in terms of what it's saying. And yet it sounds, some of the things they come out with, particularly Mr. Mr., yeah. near the end of the piece, you think, wow. I feel as if I'm hearing something I might hear on CNN yes. or Fox News, you know, yeah. uh, and that's disturbing. Well, um, we I had interviewed Sally Ann Shiplett for a, a video piece for mm-hmm, the website, mm-hmm. and she had a very distinct feeling in the rehearsal process that you would be rehearsing something, and all of a sudden she would think, wait a minute, I didn't we hear that on the news just yeah. this morning, this very thing that we're oh, talking yeah. about in here? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And right down to the fact that Mr. Mr. near the ends of, end of the play, because by this point he's bought the press and he's bought the pharmaceutical industry, basically, uh, all through the giving of money, vast amounts of money. And he thinks in the end that he can buy the trade unionists as well and get them. And, and they, won't, they won't pick up the money off the floor. They won't take the money. Um, but, you know, Near the end of the piece, he says that uh, he's he's managed to persuade the, the judge, the, the, the law courts, yeah. you know, because after all, the judge is his brother-in-law. And so there's this deep sense of corruption, mm-hmm. which I'm afraid is topical, whether we like it or not. It's right yeah. there in front of our faces. <laughs> so one of the things that you see throughout this play is this connection between money and influence and power. So I'm going to play another short clip here. And this is a moment in the play where um, David Garrison, who plays Mr. Mister, and Ken Barnett, who plays Editor Daly, he's the editor of the local paper in Steeltown, USA, um, where they're singing just about this and uh, about the freedom of the press. I believe newspapers are great mental shapers. My steel industry is dependent on the railing. Just you call them, you say, we'll go 
sunders can be made to order. Oh, the press, the press, the freedom of the press, they'll never take away the freedom of the press. We must be free to say whatever's on our chest. With a hey diddle deep and a home naughty note For whichever side will pay the best Now at the end of that clip actually uh, And what audience would see in the show But you can't because we're uh, you're listening to us right now Is that Mr. Mystery then kind of throws a giant wad of cash At Editor Daily And that exchange of money motif It presents itself a number of times throughout the play Um that exchange of money, it's so allegorical, and it really is really symbolic as a mm-hmm. part of this show. Yeah. Um, what does that represent beyond just the fact of the money being exchanged? You know, again, I think we live in a culture where, uh, you know, you know, I'll say it because I don't come from here, but, you know, your country is is led by a billionaire. So, you know, that's true. And yeah. and it's interesting that, the, that money has... Arguably, I don't believe this is true totally, but has arguably been become part of the uh, manifestation of the American dream. Um, I happen to think that the notion of the American dream is a wonderful notion. Um, uh, and as somebody who comes from a country that is uh, led by a monarchy, I'm all for the notion that you could be the next president of the United States right. of America. Um, that's a wonderful, wonderful idea. But as we know, it takes now uh, billions of dollars to become the next president of the United States of America, whoever it is. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who that. it is. Yeah. You've got to raise all that, all those, you know, all those uh, cocktail parties or whatever it is that they all have to do. It's just the same as we have to do trying to uh, keep a theater open. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, the, 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 of course, the money is really a, a way of trying to get the audience to face the fact that not everything can be bought and yeah. that some people, for example, the character who sings Joe Worker, right. um, whose brother has been uh, really uh, maimed by uh, a bad practice in the machinery factories, um, She's really, her 11 o'clock number uh, is, is the core, is the heart of the piece because um, she hasn't got any money to throw on the floor. Mm-hmm. She's never given any money. She's not one of the people who's fed the dollars right. because she's not important enough. Mm-hmm. It's only those people who will help Mr. Mister, who will make Mr. Mister feel better, who will let him grow in status. They're the ones who get the money. So yes, the money is a is an allegory. There aren't any other props in the show. No, um, it's just some oil cans that they sit on, sort of to give a sense of a factory world, yeah. um, you know, a metallic masculine world, and uh, and the money itself. It, for me, it's slightly thematic. I I, I did a, a piece um, at the Public Theatre some years ago, uh, which was written by Stephen Sondheim and John Wyman called Roadshow, which was the, uh, Steve Sondheim's last ex- uh, full musical to date. He's writing another one now, but at that time. And it was about the Meisner brothers, uh, the architect and his brother. And uh, and that I used the same allegory there quite deliberately. I mean, I was interested in how much, how far do we have to go to show the same images to get our point across. Right. And that's very 
quote-unquote Brechtian, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very European aesthetic of face it, you know. Yeah, um, it's there. Yeah, I mean, Brecht would have held up a placard with a dollar sign on it. <laughs> yeah, So it's almost, if I say almost cartoonish in a way. It is, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it also, it's interesting because in talking about the season and Arturo Ui, mm -hmm. you see some of those same moments, although it's not with money being thrown on the floor, but a lot of that same stuff Similar it feels as if you're watching the moments That's correct. right again. You're seeing them again. Yeah. And, and you know, also to say, uh, like, we're all complicit. We are all, you know, mm. we all need a certain number of dollars, right? Yes. Uh, you know, you, we all want to have our subway card. We all want to have a nice dinner. Uh, and that's all important stuff. And yet, at whose cost is that? And right. that's a very, very complex series of questions that I've just raised there. No, you know, it's very, it's very, true. very complex. So uh, I, I don't want any audience to think that I am, well, I don't really mind what people think in a way, but I, I don't want people to feel uh, that I'm hitting them over the head with it. But on the other hand, I think some nowadays maybe we have to be constantly faced with an image, with a theatrical image that repeats sure. because we are so bombarded on television by, you know, uh, everything is breaking news. You know, every two seconds right. it's breaking news. And uh, in, in the theatre we have we have a responsibility that is often a visual responsibility that can lead toward a visceral reaction to something. Um, and that's the, really the reason for the, the vast number of dollars. It's beautiful. Is there anything that you hope that or you think that people will walk away with after seeing this play? Is there anything you've been hearing from audiences? You know, I don't know if I should say this publicly really, but I don't, I'm not somebody who particularly stops and listens to what an audience member has to say. Not as a point of disregard. No, I no. do not mean it like that at all. But I can't take all that on. All right. I, I'm a storyteller, so all I can do is tell the story the way I see it. Right. And that's my job as an artist. And to get influenced in that other way is just not... Absolutely. Just not right. You know, a, a painter doesn't paint a painting and then stand to see what everybody thinks that think, it, I mean, you think I should have used more blue no right. I mean you know but I do the job I do to make a to, to make a statement uh -huh. and it's up to the receiver how they view the statement yeah. do I want people to like it or not like it well I want people to see it so I want them to be to like it or dislike it enough to tell somebody else to go see it and like it or dislike it enough, <laughs> I right? But I, but I don't feel, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm fortunate in that I'm not somebody who needs a sort of sense of aggrandizement for, you know, a, a approval in that way for, yeah. for something. But, um, but I do, I've always believed that art in any form and any of its great forms can be a major contributor to changing the world for the better. And I, I think this, these pieces, these great classical pieces that we get to do at Classic Stage, they've lasted, they live, they continue to live. They mean they may not always be the best pieces. I mean, would I say to you that The Cradle Will Rock is the best musical ever written? No, absolutely not. Yeah. But do I think it's an important musical? For sure. Right. Because without it, we wouldn't have had many of the things that we have now. If I, I'll be honest and say that without it, we might not have had Hamilton, because that too is a political musical. Yeah. And and so this is the first of a of a thread, yes. yeah, that went through politic. Oklahoma, 
is a political musical. Very much so. Um, so uh, this the piece feels important to me in terms of what it, it what it is historically and what it can say to us now, uh, and that's. And that element of changing the world in all these 45 years that I've been making theatre has never gone away from me. I've, I still believe it. I still believe, in fact, I think it's more vital, theatre now is more vital now than it's ever been. But not just in terms of entertainment, yes, you want right. to entertain people, whatever that word means. Um, but, but more importantly, we have a voice that, that yes. needs to be heard. Um, and that's challenging. And that same voice can be heard in the great classics, right? It's not just in the political no. pieces of, today, of then or now, mm -hmm. but it, it's all the way through Shakespeare, for example. This, the, the, the root of all of the Shakespeare stories is all about who, who we are and how it reflects our humanity. So that's what I'm interested in. Is the, does the work reflect our, our humanity? That that doesn't. Mean, I, I'm not interested in whether it gets standing ovations or X number of laughs a night or anything right. like that. Couldn't care less. In fact, sometimes the most silent audience might be the one that gets it the most. Yeah, they're listening. You, they're listening. You can't do it for everybody. You can only. You you might just change a person, for the better. That's okay. That's great. Okay, so switching topics just briefly before we close up here. We just announced our next season. And people are very excited. Uh, would you mind just going through for the listeners what we'll be doing uh, next sure. season in case they haven't heard? Sure. Well, I, I referred there to William Shakespeare. Um, so we're, we're doing a Shakespeare at the beginning. Um, I would like us to be doing a Shakespeare at least once every two years. We did two of them a, a couple of years ago. Um, this is the first big, this will be the first big Shakespearean tragedy we'll have done in, within my tenure. So we're doing uh, the Scottish play. I'll, uh, we're not in a theatre, so I can say the word Macbeth. <laughs> um, uh, but so we're doing Macbeth. Um, uh, it, it's a play I've done before, more than once actually. Uh, I'm very fond of it, and uh, of course I'm Scottish, so that helps. But it's not written by a Scotsman, <laughs> and uh, of course I come from Inverness, which is where the play is set. But that's immaterial as well, really. Um, but you know, the play is about the darker side of humanity of right. that there's no question the play is about uh, a misuse of power and a taking an a, a, a not so much illegal we'll call it that as a shortcut an illegal procurement mm -hmm. of power and, and, and it, it, it's because the point in 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 that monarchy that that all exists in is that if you if you steal the monarchy yeah. you're going against the gods right that it's not yours it's not yours so, so that's first, and it's a great piece, and it's short, and it's not difficult to understand, and those are all useful things, right? And violent. And it's violent, and <laughs> young people love that play, so that's great. Um, and then we're doing two, we're repeating our repertoire idea in the right. middle slots, or middle block of work, um, but rather than basing it this year on our playwright, uh, in terms of Strindberg, as was last year, right. this this is more thematic than that, I suppose. So we're doing two Gothic plays, um, Dracula and Frankenstein. They will be both written by, adapted by uh, emerging writers. Right. 
Um, but deliberately not done at Halloween, right? I mean, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not wanting the audience to show up with plastic fangs or anything yeah. like that in their mouths. Uh, but but the, because we're wanting to look at what the themes are of those extraordinarily psychologically complicated uh-huh. plays. And somewhat romantic, too, in many ways. Oddly. Yeah. Oddly romantic and disturbing, mm-hmm. uh, uncomfortable. Not many laughs, really, are there so far? I'm sorry, everybody, but there we go. <laughs> and then finally, um, we're, we're doing Assassins, which is by Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman, which is about uh, nine of the of nine people who aimed to assassinate presidents of the United States of America, but is done in a musical theatre, almost slightly vaudevillian sense in a way, mm. in a way. Um, uh, it's interesting, I, I was talking to John Weidman the other day, who came to see um, uh, The Cradleable Rock on the opening night. He's a friend of mine, and, and I said, well, John, you know, The Cradleable Rock reminds me of your work. It's got a similar, very political uh-huh. th- theme at heart. And, and so Assassins is, is, is a follow-on, to be honest, is another partner for the political pieces that we've done this year. Not for any, in any sense am I suggesting that I would encourage assassination to anybody. Oh, I'm not meaning that for a heartbeat. But, but because the play is, the musical is really more about the extraordinary lengths people will take. Yes, to find their 15 minutes of fame. And that drive towards that. And that drive to find It's less that. about the, the action. Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, and for me personally, it, fill, it, it will fulfill a wonderful dream, if you like, of I will have therefore done all three of the Sondheim Weidman pieces um, because uh, I, I did uh, uh, Pacific Overshoes at Classic Stage. Uh-huh. Uh, a roadshow which used to be called Bounce. Uh-huh. I helped them make it into the piece that it is now. That was a very privileged, wonderful experience. And Assassins, um, which in a way is the most, almost the most complete of that triumvirate of pieces, is something that I've wanted to do in order to finish that box set of three musicals, um, all of which on some level are looking at the United States of America. I mean, mm. you might think that Pacific Overtures is looking at Japan, but it's not really. I mean, it's mm. really looking at imperialism, uh, and uh, but American imperialism at that, right? <laughs> uh, so they're all, they all have have an exploration of, of the American psyche at their, at their hearts. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 when we've done the Sondheim pieces, both Passion, which was the first piece I did at CSC, and um, uh, and Pacific Overtures, they've really done incredibly well at the box office sure. and I think critically. And so let's hope that that repeats. <laughs> you can never tell. It's the business of show and whoever knows what might happen. But I've, I'm hoping that, you know, there's something interestingly, interestingly thematic in the darkness of, oh, of the pieces of the season. Yeah. Well, it's going to be quite the season. Uh, Thank you, John, so much for joining us. Um, And thank you, uh, listeners, for listening to the first episode of the brand new CSC podcast. If you want any more information on Classic Stage Company, please visit us online at classicstage.org. And uh, we hope to be coming your way with more interviews just like this one very soon, uh, with more podcasts in the future. And uh, I'll leave you with a bit of Rima Webb singing a bit from The Cradle Will Rock, uh, Joe Worker, which is the song we were speaking about earlier. And until then, we will see you on 13th Street.
Undertaker 